and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem podcast. Today, today is the serial 7 and 8 from Bleak House. We are splitting up the serials a bit more than we have in the past, but hopefully that will be enjoyable because of the depth that we'll be able to bring for the section that we're going through this week. We are still going to do a particular informal episode to these four sections. It'll be organized a bit differently than last time, but again, I think the quality and depth will be a lot more thorough than perhaps last week. This episode, as you obviously can tell, is coming out on the Thursday of the second Bleak House week that we're doing, and the following informal episode will be published on the following Sunday-Monday episode publishing date. Let's start out with chapter 20, A New Lodger. In Serial 7, this is the omniscient narrator, and I want to just remind everyone really quickly, including myself here, (laughs) that really my argument throughout this section that we're going through Serials 5 through 8 is that no object of society, no aspect of society, no character is safe from Dickens' criticism, aside from perhaps the moral and upright represented by, of course, our second narrator, Esther Summerson. I'm also going to be highlighting especially the relationships and the connections of different characters, scenes, and events to the court case, as this whole novel and everything in it does revolve around the Court of Chancery. So, A New Lodger, Chapter 20. This is, again, the start of Serial 7. We see Guppy, who is at the Kangi and Carboy Law Office in London. We get this over overarching aerial view of Guppy as he's sitting in the office. He is musing over how he tolerates Richard. He doesn't like Richard because Richard comes from a more genteel background than he does. I think part of that behind there is jealousy, maybe. Uh, Yet, he tolerates Richard because Richard is so caught up in the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case, which he knows will come to nothing and really is meaningless. So he doesn't see Richard as an intellectual or a career-oriented threat. He more so sees Richard as this spoiled rich boy who waltzes into the profession and starts wasting his time immediately on entry into the the law office. He does like Smallweed, however, who's another participant, shall we say, in the law office of Kengen Carboy. Smallweed, his whole object in life is to become basically Guppy, which is quite interesting to me uh, in terms of the revolving jealousy that we have in this circle of relationships at the law stationer's office, in terms of Guppy is wanting to have the prestige and position that Richard has. Smallweed wants what Guppy has. And Guppy is in this, interestingly, in this position of power in the law stationer's office. And before this chapter, all we have seen from Guppy (laughs) is this very diminutive picture of 
a young man who is not only over caricatured in terms of he is this puppy-like figure going after Esther, following her quite, quite creepily when she's in London, across to various theater plays, etc. But also someone who is a mama's boy. He is not very fortunate in many respects, and he takes to that position with a sort of ingracious light instead of a light of curiosity and trying to advance with that lighter frame of mind. He really has this heavy burden on himself, which may be having to do with self-image, for example. Don't want to read into Guppy too much because we haven't gotten much directly from him yet, so I won't read into him as much as I want to, perhaps, at this point. <laughs> Outside of Kengi and Carboys, uh, Joe Bling, who is a friend that meets up with Smallweed and Guppy, they three meet and go to dinner. At the dinner, we learn a bit more about this new Joe Bling character. I find it really interesting how there's Job as the start of this name, quite obviously, but if you think about the implications of the biblical figure of Job, and the consequences, etc., that are tied to the name Job. I wonder how that's going to evolve as we get deeper into this series. We have this rather unfortunate figure, Jobling, who wants to join the army because he has a lack of anything better to do. He's in quite a tight spot. He needs to find some source of income, something to do quite quickly because he is running out of food, money, housing, everything under the sun. He's quite similar to Richard, actually, in this first scene that we have of him, in the sense that he's very wayward and he doesn't seem to have any clear ideas about when or if or how he is going to settle down. And he turns to these absolutist kinds of mentalities when he says the only option left is this because I waited so long <laughs> now I have no options and so he has this very one-way street frame of mind that we definitely see in Richard as Richard is considering all of these different op occupations and later as we'll see Richard running out of essentially all of his money and inheritance getting into some debt in a similar similar style I might add to David Copperfield in some respects so, Jobling is in dire straits. Guppy is setting up Jobling with this dinner, and he's treating Jobling in small weed. And Guppy says, Why don't you, Jobling, go copy for Snagsby and become Mr. Crook's new lodger? So, essentially, weirdly, <laughs> this is quite a bit of a red flag for me, um, Guppy positions Jobling in the same position as Nemo had when Nemo was alive. And so Jobling is going to essentially become a law copier for Mr. Stagsby, working, um, gosh, hopefully not <laughs> Nemo's night shifts, but we'll see. And then also living in the same room that Nemo was in when he died and dealing with Mr. Crook and the circle of interesting connections therein. 
at the end of the chapter, Job Ling moves in and he settles all of these accommodations. And there's a really interesting last passage about his weakness for fashion slash gossip, which does call to mind the fashionable <laughs> review or the fashionable perspectives looking after Lady Deadlock and her husband <laughs> in the first couple chapters. Chapter 21, The Smallweed Family, Omniscient Narrator. So we have the this characterization of the Smallweed Family. I will say this is one of the hardest chapters that we've read in this novel. For me, it might have been harder to read because it's just more dense. There's not much happening and it's really just a historical overview of the Smallweed Family going down three generations. So we've got this grandmother who's childish. She is just, she doesn't really have the uh, command of mind to make a great connections, etc. Uh, at this stage, the grandfather, he's quite rigid in the way that he thinks, the way that he runs the house and the business, and he's quite limited in his thought slash perceptions as well. So he's got this very characteristic um, rigidity that some heads of households had in this time. His son, their son, I suppose, is a moneylender, yet the son dies. And there's this little adage about the small weeds marrying late and getting a later start in life, so which is an interesting theme and I think very fitting to how Dickens characterizes these uh, characters, even the ways that they look. Um, and the son's wife, by the way, also dies shortly after their twins are born. The twins are Judith, Judith and Bartholomew, aka Bart. And Bart, we've all we already met. He was at the dinner with Guppy and Jobling. Judith is a really stern figure who, and they both really didn't have a childhood. So they sort of developed into early adults, and she has an affinity for making fake flowers, which is kind of contrasting with her character in a way, but also very similar. So there's this sort of beauty aspect that's very interesting and contrasting because she's never got an opportunity to grow into a beautiful uh, young figure. She became matronly right away and she became a uh, driver of servant girls right away. And yet there's this falsity and this falsehood to fake flowers in general, if you think about the synthetics and things that go into making them, that does quite suit her. And so it's almost like the fake flowers are a symbol or um, an outstanding representation of her as a figure. The fake flowers never having a chance to be alive and grow as they would in nature. And similarly, Judith, Judith Smallweed having a similar situation. Bart, again, emphasizes that he works in law. He really wants to just become Guppy. <laughs> Guppy has a higher position at Kangi and Carboys than him. The little girl, Charlie, there's the three little children that we met a few chapters ago uh, who were Covens's children. Uh, Covens's was the nickname of the man who was a debt collector for some of the debts that the child man, one of uh, Cousin John's charges had. So Charlie, this young girl, 
is working for them. And we see this heartbreaking scene where Judith allows Charlie to come out for some tea and her afternoon snack. And Charlie gets like two minutes round trip to finish her tea and snacks. And she is yelled at for not eating and drinking fast enough and yelled at for eating and drinking too fast and showing ingratitude that way. So it's a, yeah, it's a heartbreaking scene because there's nothing to be learned from it from Charlie's perspective. And Judith seems to be treating the household in a very unreasonable way, which again goes into a lot of the caricature that is involved, especially in this very interesting historical overview of the Smallweed family. In this scene, the midst of this scene with Charlie, there's a figure named Mr. George, who we'll hear a lot about in the forthcoming sections. He visits for some business with the grandfather. He is as big and broad in stature as the Smallweeds are thin and withered in stature. So there's this huge contrast. Mr. George used to be a military man. He owns a gun shop. And so they conduct business and the scene, this chapter ends at George's shooting gallery, which is a very familiar scene for someone like me who grew up in the Southwest. <laughs> and he goes to bed essentially <laughs> he goes into the shooting gallery there's an assistant named phil there uh, there's a really peculiar introduction there's something mysterious going on at the shooting gallery which we'll get to in a bit and he packs up he does a couple rounds packs up and goes to bed chapter 22 mr bucket omniscient narrator Mr. Snagsby joins Mr. Tolkinghorn for dinner. I love this adage with Mr. Tolkinghorn about some of the good rare wines that he has hidden away from everyone else. And it's my question, at least to Mr. Tolkinghorn, is who are you hiding them from? Because you really don't have anyone around to be observing you, except for this omniscient narrator, apparently. So he has this stash of beautiful wines that are aged 50 odd years and he, he goes secretly into his little corridor, his little wine cellar, and gets the wine for dinner. Um, and again, it's just, it's talking about Mr. Tolkienhorn similarly, I think, to Mr. Turvydrop. Um, even their names are similar, which is kind of a, it, you should pay attention to those similitudes in Dickens. <laughs> um, this fake gentility, this, this crafted and very artificial sense of nobility and people do i will say people do seem to respect Tolkienhorn more than turby drop at least we've seen more of Tolkienhorn in public and with other people and their thoughts about him etc so whatever that artificial sense of gentility gives Tolkienhorn, it does serve him quite well so snagsby is there to tell Tolkienhorn about this Joe incident where Joe shows up at the door with these policemen and Guppy's there and there's a whole hollow blue about Joe with this lady who shows who asks him and treats him and pays him to show her the sites of Nemo's I almost said Nico's Nemo's employment living quarters and grave 
And so Snagsby thinks, I should tell Tolkienhorn about this. They have dinner. Mr. Bucket, a private investigator slash detective, appears on the scene very mysteriously. Quite like this Mr. Bucket figure, actually. Um, reminds me of Detective Dupont in some of the Poe short stories that we went over earlier in the year. Links uh, on the website at relevanceofliterature.com for that. The dinner concludes with Mr. Snagsby <laughs> quite drunk, and uh, that's maybe aside from the point, I just find that to be a funny addition because of the whole... Really, this omniscient narrator starts hyping up all the wine <laughs> that they're having as uh, Tolkienhorn is convincing Snagsby to help him figure out more about this. In a very subversive way, I might add. So, Snagsby and Mr. Bucket go out to Tom All Alone's, remember that desolate place in London that we went over last episode, to go out and find Joe. Nemo, essentially, we hear from Mr. Bucket, was entitled to some property that someone has been playing games around. Cough, cough, perhaps, is that Lady Deadlock? Maybe? I, I have no idea at this point. It, it, we don't know. But <laughs> it seems pretty obvious. I don't think Dickens playing any games here. Maybe he is, but uh, I don't think so. So <laughs> maybe Lady Deadlock. Um, has been playing games around and manipulating some of the assets that Nemo um, would have been entitled to. We know already that he seems like he seemed like a man who had a great fall in life. There's a really interesting characterization of Tom all alones, and it's reflected in the faces of Mr. Bucket and Snagsby as they go there. It's like their whole body posture changes in response to the scenes around them, what they're seeing, hearing, smelling, um, in the dark at Tom all alone. And so I love the way that the, the landscape and the structures around them play off on their bodies. And the narrator takes care to read their bodies and their faces in a really interesting way as this lamp that's the only light and I can just see Mr. Bucket thrusting this lamp to and fro as they're trying to navigate these these little hutches and huddles that don't look like they could be habitable but somehow are. The pair run into, interestingly, these the two brick makers from last section, the serials one through four, and their wives. Remember, one of the wives had Jenny, had a baby that died. And the second wife, Jenny's friend Liz here, uh, has a three-week-old baby. And so it's sort of a reversal of roles in a sense of, uh, maybe a continuation of roles in the sense that Jenny is the one that's really taking care of this baby, taking after this baby, whereas Liz wishes the baby dead because the situation and the circumstances are so terrible that she would rather her child be dead than alive and living through these circumstances. Joe returns. He was on an errand for the brickmaker's wives because there's been some illness and some pretty nasty conditions, so he returns with medicine. Um, they three, Snags Me, Bucket, and Joe, go back to Tolkienhorn's place and... Uh, like an apparition. It's so beautiful the way that the scene is constructed. 
Mademoiselle Hortense is there. This is Lady Deadlock's lady, lady maid, waiting maid. Uh, she is dressed in the same cloak and tunic as Lady Deadlock, I think, <laughs> as this mysterious woman was when she asked Joe to show her all these places. So Joe says, it's, it's an amazing scene because also we get this beautiful sense of how Joe uses language, which is so different and so marked compared to the other characters. And he says, it is her, but it isn't her. Uh, and there's this beautiful sense of how he's trying to articulate things that he doesn't know how, and yet he does. He's so communicative about it. And uh, Mr. Bucket and Tolkien Horn obviously get what they need out of him because they know it was someone dressed in this way with this stature, but not exactly. It's not an exact copy of the woman that was there. Um, it is the woman, but it isn't the woman. Chapter 23, Esther's Narrative, of course narrated by Esther, serial number 8. Mademoiselle Hortense, apparently before they leave Lincolnshire, throws herself at Esther and she says, I would love to be your lady's maid. And Esther says, I don't think so. <laughs> and Esther is quite perturbed by this instance and does recount it from her past perspective. And I find it to be a very odd circumstance as well. And I wonder how this Mademoiselle Hortense character is going to pan out in, in this narrative. I wonder how she's going to come back because I'm sure she will. But she is no longer, of course, working for Lady Deadlock. She would love to work for Esther. Uh, and she asks for free, and Esther still turns her down, so I wonder how this is going to develop. Esther goes to London at the request of Caddy, uh, Caddy Jellybee that is, and we see along the way that as she walks from the train station to the meeting place with Caddy, she walks with Richard, who is in London, uh, studying law studying Jarndyce and Jarndyce rather, <laughs> Richard is thinking, I don't like this as much as I thought I would. Same thing, it's the same cyclic pattern that he had with the surgery slash surgeon position training. <laughs> um, Richard is going to join the army this time and he really is not going uh, quite in a straight or linear, perhaps, organized path here with his career. The rest of the chapter is spent with Caddy and her fiancé Prince, Prince Turvydrop, if you'll remember. Uh, they are going to tell their parents about their engagement. Esther was the one, really, that was champion championing that view, where she said, you all really should not keep this engagement a secret from your parents, you should really tell them. Um, and Esther is there to provide friendly support for their efforts. So they first tell old Turvydrop the figure of deportment and he responds well. I mean, honestly, he's so selfishly driven that uh, to him, I see this new addition to his family as just another means of him getting enough income for him to live the kind of life and lifestyle that he wants to live. So I, I see it really as no 
I don't see it as him losing his son. I see it as him gaining another source of income, essentially, for his lifestyle. You all can let me know in the comments if you see it that way, how you read Mr. Turvy Drop's reaction, old Turvy Drop, that is. And Caddy's mother, Mrs. Jellybee, the uh, African coffee philanthropist, um, we get this really awful scene with them uh, where the father has committed bankruptcy and there's, uh, he's just in the throes of these horrible times and not having any support from any of his family really is at its wits end, this family. And Miss Jellybee responds with indifference, which I think is almost more heartbreaking to some extent than some of the other reactions that Caddy had tried to anticipate. And yet the parents are told and the engagement is made somewhat public. At the end of this chapter, a surprise, Charlie, little Charlie, that young girl, Coven's daughter, becomes Esther's maid. She gets somewhat sponsored by Cousin John, who is now a favorite of the whole book. <laughs> um, and yeah, John is taking care of the three children now, and it's really interesting how he finds these charges and how there's this collection of people under his care that he really does seek to enliven and better in in ways that I find to be very respectable. Um, so we've got these three children and the second child, the boy, is at school and the baby is in the care of their old landlord. So they've all three got much better prospects than they did when we saw them last time. Chapter 24, an appeal case. Esther's narration again. So Richard has to go through the Lord Chancellor to get approved to join the army. He goes through that process and is approved. John makes Richard and Ada break off their engagement in a very interesting scene that's uh, more detached and distant than I would have expected from these characters. Wonder how you all read that scene. If you thought it was emotional or detached like I did, I would be interested to see. Richard, of course, doesn't want to. He's in that stubborn teenage phase where he says, no, I don't want to do that, dad. And of course, you know, they're all cousins here, but still that relationship holds. Ada wants to do what's best and she sees what cousin John has to add to the equation to be equivalent to what's best. So she says, look, I will break off the engagement. Mr. George comes in on scene. I told you he'd be back. He practices weapons with Richard. So he's in, involved in the process of training Richard for the army. Apparently he was friends with Gridley, who uh, Bucket, Mr. Bucket, I might add, is looking for, so Gridley is uh, on the run, essentially. We see that when Richard and Esther go to the Court of Chancery for a session, they see Miss Flight there, of course. It's a madhouse in the sense of they really don't get anything done, and Richard says, ah, it's, you know, it's just about to be finished blah 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 and Esther is looking at this like 
they're never going to finish this because no one ever knows <laughs> what's going on and how far they are in the case, etc. So there's this very bleak, no pun intended, account of this case uh, in the Court of Chancery, Jarnus and Jarnus. Guppy, at the end of the court meeting that they go to, brings Rachel slash Mrs. Chadband to see Esther. And that's a really brief scene, interestingly, because uh, there is this need for Mr. George to bring Miss Flight to see Gridley, who he is hiding, uh, whom he's hiding. And so Mr. George entreats Esther right after she sees Rachel and Guppy to bring Miss Flight to the lodgings to the shooting gallery that he owns so that Miss Flight can essentially say goodbye to Gridley seems like. There's this very weird culmination that reminds me of The Turn of the Screw, if you've read that novel by Henry James, uh, with Gridley's death in Miss Flight's arms and there's all this buzz and chatter that Esther has trouble in my my mind's eye, my reading mind's eye, uh, articulating, and Mr. Bucket shows up pretending to be a doctor, and he's trying to take Gridley into custody, and Gridley ends up dying in this in this very uncharacteristic flutter of life out of him. Chapter twenty-five. Mrs. Snagsby sees it all. From the omniscient narrator's perspective, this is the last chapter for this section. Mrs. Snagsby is, she's been excluded from this whole situation, this whole hullabaloo with Mr. Snagsby, which is very uncharacteristic for their relationship. Mr. Snagsby likes to involve his little woman as much as he can. Uh, yet, here we are. So she thinks her solution is to assume that Mr. Snagsby had an affair such that this unfortunate character, Joe, is one of his offspring, which is probably blasphemous, probably not true, like very likely not true, actually. Um, we know, obviously, that there are these extenuating circumstances involving Joe and Tolkienhorn and the whole underpinning of mystery behind that and Mr. Snagsby really doesn't know much about the whole situation in general either. Uh, what he's hiding from Mrs. Snagsby is indeed his business finding Joe again and conducting this whole business with Nemo after Nemo's public trial in the town where there's this extra story with Joe going on. So Mrs. Snagsby is like 85% of the way caught up with this whole saga in terms of what she knows versus what Mr. Snagsby knows. Mr. Snagsby knows like 60% of what we know. <laughs> so it's this very interesting like layering of people's knowledge and characters' knowledge that of course, my friends, is dramatic irony. Mr. Chadband arrives on scene, of course. Uh, he's quite attached to Mrs. Snagsby, or she to him, rather, at this point. Uh, he gives a sermon over Joe, who is visiting. This is amazing interplay between him and Snagsby, 
and Mrs. Snagsby, rather, and uh, Joe, where he says this thing about him being, Joe being an unfortunate son, and Mrs. Snagsby goes humph, and it's almost like a play, like a Greek chorus in a play, where Mrs. Snagsby has the chorus lines, and Mr. Chadband has the monologue, for lack of a better term. At the end of this, Guster, who lives with Mr. and Mrs. Snagsby and Mr. Snagsby again, show Joe some more kindness as they see him out the door. I'm going to read from page 352, the last page of this chapter, last paragraph. Let's do it. And so, good night. A ghostly shade, frilled and nightcapped, follows the law stationer to the room he came from and glides higher up. And henceforth he begins, go where he will, to be attended by another shadow than his own, hardly less constant than his own, hardly less quiet than his own. And into whatsoever atmosphere of secrecy his own shadow may pass, let all concerned in the secrecy beware. For the watchful Mrs. Snagsby is there too, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, shadow of his shadow. And that is all for this episode. Thank you very much for joining me on these serials 7 and 8 for this episode and 5 through 8 for this Bleak House week. Our next Bleak House week is upcoming in 3 to 4 weeks. We will be going over another four serials, so serials 9 through 12, that is. And on Monday, we will be doing our informal episode, which will be talking about three different larger quotation sections in these within these four serials and we'll be dissecting them a bit it'll be quite a fun tea gathering if you all are into tea or want to bring some coffee or sweets that'll be a fun time all right y'all i will see you on monday If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.